Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Recently, I was in Calgary, Canada, speaking to... Uh, various executives and communications professionals from different oil companies, mostly companies focused on the Canadian oil sands, also sometimes called uh, tar sands. And during my travels, I met a number of interesting people with different perspectives. Uh, and one in particular that I wanted to bring on the show uh, was a CEO of a company, a company called Quest Air Energy, and the CEO is Michael Binion. And Michael and I got the chance to talk uh, quite a bit and one thing that impressed me about him was that he had a lot of experience in the trenches of business, you know, running an oil company. But at the same time, he had a great deal of uh, long-term and historical and even philosophical perspective on how the industry was going, what the trends were, uh, what the obstacles were. Um, and this came from, I'm sure, among other things, just extensive study of you know, various forms of, of literature about what makes societies go well and go badly, uh, including a lot of the, the free market literature, which we discussed. So I think this is a really important combination. And so I wanted to bring him on the show to share some of his ideas about the state of the oil industry in Canada, which is his particular area of expertise. Although, as I think you'll see, there's a lot of lessons to be drawn and, and parallels to be drawn uh, with the United States oil industry and more broadly the fossil fuel industry and more broadly the energy industry. So I hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're now joined by Michael Binion, CEO of Quest Air Energy. Michael, welcome to Power Hour. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. Well, the reason I'm having you on the show today is I've been doing a lot of work uh, with uh, Canadian oil companies lately. I visited Calgary recently, and, and we met there. And one thing that, that struck me was you had a really interesting uh, perspective because you're both the CEO of an oil and gas company, um, but you also have a, a general broader political interest in what's been happening to the Canadian oil industry. So I wanted to start off by asking What's in the last thirty years or so? How have the politics of oil in Canada changed? Well, I think the—I I mean, I think the one thing that's—and it's not—it's not restricted to Canada at all. But the—you uh, know—the—the the, people have a whole bunch of different words for it. Uh, uh, but there's a big paradigm shift in energy, with you know the change in hydraulic fracturing unlocking. Gas from various tight form, tight rock formations, and now oil from various tight rock formations. So I would say in Canada, it would have never occurred to anyone that America wouldn't forever need our oil and our gas. And we're sitting at a moment in time right now that I think that if Canada cut off its gas exports to America, America, rather than saying, what about our special relationship and what about the free trade agreement, might rather say, oh, well, do you need any of ours? So it's a, that's a major change uh, economically, psychologically, uh, and, and I don't think that people here have completely come to grips with it. Um, since a lot of our listeners are American, can you elaborate on what the previous perspective was like from the perspective of Canadians, how they thought about their position and the enduring nature of that position? Yeah, I mean, I think Canadians, uh, I mean, I, I grew up always thinking of America more like a member of the family. And, you know, I mean, it's, 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 always, it's always a shock to me to get to some parts of America and find out that they think that Canada is a foreign country because we always think of of Britain and America and even maybe Australia as being um, as being more like cousins or you know having this special relationship that is referred to a lot between Washington and Ottawa it's referred to as well between London and, and Washington the special relationships 
and I think you know I think I think that growing up Canadians have always felt that we were the um, that we were the reliable junior partner to America that we could be counted on um, you know counted on as a junior junior ally and and one of the things that that was understood and this was a key component of the 1988 free trade agreement was that we would be a reliable supplier of resources and a reliable more particularly a reliable supplier of oil and gas uh, to America and I think you know I think Canadians have always intuitively or implicitly is maybe a better word felt that that was part of the unwritten deal between America and Canada and, th- and that's probably why it's such a shock to suddenly find well actually the America might have a lot of its own oil and gas and maybe it actually doesn't need us to do that anymore or at least not to the extent it used to um, so what about what about just the domestic political policy toward Canada? What if any big changes have there been in the last thirty years? And when you mean domestic, you mean the American domestic change of policy, or Canadian? no, no, no? I mean, I mean the Canadian. So with respect to shale, with respect to oil sands, with respect to just conventional drilling. In, and, 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 and I'm sorry, I've lost over the last 30 years, you're saying? Yeah, I just mean current policy. Yeah. I mean, the context here is that you know, being in Canada, there are all sorts of concerns about NGOs and, and all kinds of opposition. And, and you've had this big yeah. development of the oil sands there. So I'm just wondering about the, the arc of, uh, of political policy, particularly, again, because we have a lot of listeners who are not in Canada. Well, I think the biggest thing that, you know, if you want to look into broadscape, the biggest change is we went from a time, you know, out of the 1960s and 70s, where, uh, you know, out of the social revolution of the 1960s, Canada elected a socialist government, and we did a partial nationalization of oil and gas resources called the National Energy Policy. It's been uh, it's been a source of internal. Uh, disagreement in Canada, mainly between Alberta and, and Ottawa, because it was our resources that they were working to nationalize. And so the biggest change that's happened is that it then moved into a free trade agreement whereby you know, we had an unrestricted open border to sell our oil and gas directly from Alberta to America. Uh, the federal government couldn't interfere in our provincial or equivalent of state rights. And that left Alberta and, and other provinces free to uh, free to export all we wanted and and it also um, meant that the industry became very private enterprise again and uh, so that that's the, the you know the quick reader's digest version and and then no it felt like no sooner than that was all going swimmingly well um, all of this new and it's not that we haven't discovered this new gas and oil in Canada too um, it's it's just that we're finding that we're selling our product to America much below world prices because, you know, the market demand in America is not as big as it as it, as it was before beforehand. I mean, to, to what extent is that that influenced by delays and things like the Keystone XL pipeline? Well, I would say, you know, um, and one thing that I do say is. That while Canada may may have a, a feeling that it, it that part of the unwritten deal between us and our special relationship is that we'll be a reliable supplier of energy, the decision not to build or at least to delay for an indeterminate period of time the XL pipeline sent a signal that perhaps America didn't feel the need to be a reliable customer. So you know it's no point being a reliable supplier if people don't want to be a reliable customer. And so I would say that XL pipeline, you know, sends a big signal to Canadians that um, you know is, is that aspect of the special relationship one-sided, and and if it is, what do we do about it? It's it's interesting um, the special relationship thing because it's not something you hear too much in the U.S. and it's also not quite how I think of it. I, mean, I think of it as just Canada, you know, is, is a very friendly country and is an ally. And it's a good thing to build pipelines when you need oil. And it's just, I mean, it's just amazingly anti-development on the part of the United States to oppose something like this. 
I would I would agree, and and when I you know I spent a lot of time in the states, and and I talked to people who are pro development and pro business, and and uh, you know the, like you, they they haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about the special relationship with Canada. They are just thinking about business and what's good for the American economy and and what's good for, and and, and so the result is that can you know some some Canadians are up here, um, you know wondering what happened. Uh, because Americans are going, well, why wouldn't Canada just do what's best for the economy and best for its own national interests? And thank you for being friendly. So there's a bit of a, there's a bit, there is a bit of a difference in terms of the, the cultural view of that relationship from an American point of view versus a Canadian point of view. And I think that Canadians are waking up to saying, hey, well, m- maybe, maybe uh, we need to just do what's best for our economy because that's probably what the probably what Americans are expecting us to do anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, going going back to internal policy in Canada, internal developments uh, in Canada, one of the things that I noticed when I was there and no surprise was that just the the presence of the environmentalist movement was from my perspective casting a pall over everything in terms of industrial progress and enthusiasm for industrial progress. What's been the development of that? Is it was it just as bad thirty years ago as it is today? Well, yeah. So I I, I would say I would say that there's uh, there's events that have probably a few things that have happened that maybe have made it have magnified it. I I, I think that environment movement's always been there. It's not like Greenpeace just suddenly started yesterday. Um, but a couple of things that have happened that I think one would be never occurred to us that America wouldn't forever need our oil and gas, so why would have we built pipelines to anywhere else? So now all of a sudden we find maybe they don't, and maybe they're not willing to build an Excel pipeline, and what are we going to do that's best for our economy? Well, I guess we better get some diversity of our customer base, and maybe Europe is a place to sell oil, and maybe China is a place to sell oil too. And now that means building pipelines, and building pipelines means environmental studies and environmental approvals. So that, that's a, you know, that whole change in energy markets leads directly to uh, needing major infrastructure and, 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 and creating a point where environmentalists have a, you know, have a, have a, have a pressure point. Um, I think the other thing that is an irritant is, is that we've recently found how much American foundation money is funding these anti-pipeline groups and environmentalists in general in Canada, and uh, you know it comes at a time when the XL pipelines being blocked. We find that there's also American money blocking our internal pipelines as well. So I think that's that's a source of irritation. Uh, although I don't think anybody thinks that's America doing that. I think people realize that it's just certain American foundations that are doing that, but it's so certainly an irritant. Um, and and that financing, um, that financing that's coming in is giving a lot of resources to these environmental groups that they may not have had before. So that also changes the circumstances uh, a bit too. So both the fact that we need these environmental approvals and that environmental groups have more resources is um, is changing the landscape somewhat. Well, I'm curious how parallel this is with with the states because in the United States, having you know, 32 years old. So having been through the environmentalist dominated educational system and, and hearing people come before me saying that they didn't have nearly as much and then seeing the kids after me have way more, what I would call indoctrination, um, you know, for our part, we've had just a major infiltration in the entire educational system and ultimately the entire political establishment. Is, is there a comparable development in Canada, because at least here, that's a big explanation for uh, the decline in industrial policy. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I do. I do know anecdotally because you know my. You know, I'm 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 not 32. I'm 52, but I've got kids who are between 18 and 26, and you know, I, I live here in Alberta, whose economy is um, you know not not unlike Texas, is is largely based on oil and gas and resources, and my my kids come home from social studies in junior high or middle school and and you know well we've been learning about the oil and gas industry at school today and you guys are like evil i'm going just a second here we're you know all these taxes that are being paid by our industry 
that are going to this educational system to teach people that what we actually do is 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 evil. Um, and and the, you know these are my own kids, so you know I, I, that 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 certainly is concerning for me to to realize that 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 kind of stuff is being taught, and it and it also is just so incongruent to me that you know like what we've done in our industry is so amazing. And why aren't why aren't why aren't kids being taught about the miracle of 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 our industry and how for a hundred years people have been saying we're going to run out of oil and gas and yet through the through the efforts of of highly trained professionals um, high technology and a lot of risk taking we've managed to make sure that energy remains affordable and our environmental footprint continues to shrink all the time i'm thinking it, it feels like we've achieved this miracle and yet people are saying we're evil and i there I, I just that incongruence is partly what's got me interested in the politics of energy as you were saying at the beginning of the show well i mean the fact that you just articulated it the way you did particularly the the beginning of it about uh just how amazingly positive the industry is and what an achievement it is that's very unusual for the CEO of an energy company. And yet, I think it's undoubtedly true if we think about it. And it's also much more of an appealing posture than saying, we're not as unsustainable as you think or something, you know, something like buying into the latest jargon. Why do you think it, you're so rare in this regard? Well, I mean, I've worked, you know, I've worked in a lot of different industries. I mean, I, I tell people this is the most fun job I've ever had. It's, uh, you know, what we get to do is incredible. And I mean, I've, I've worked in real estate development. I've worked in golf course. I used to run Nevada Bob's in Ontario, Canada for a while. I used to be in retail. You know, I've been in a lot of different industries and I see, you know, I see what, you know, what those different industries have in terms of their commitments to a social conscience, their commitments to technology, their commitments to, to society and so on and so forth. And I get into the oil and gas industry. It is in, in an incredible mix of high technology uh, you know, I, I always say to people like, you know, is, is, I'm not sure building an Apple iPhone is all that tough compared to what we do. We probably combine uh, 10 or 15 dozens of different technologies as complicated as that uh, to, to all come together to be able to find all this stuff under the ground and actually figure out how to get it out of the ground. And I, I, so I'm just genuinely, I'm just genuinely excited to be working in an industry that does so much uh, interesting technology, and but also take so much risk and opportunities to create wealth. It's it's I, I, it's exciting, and I'm proud to be in the industry. And I don't understand why people would wouldn't be. Well, do you have any uh, speculation as to why? Because surely, surely, you've seen it, and there are a number of possible explanations. Well, I, I don't know. One 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 thing that occurs to me is if I'm a if I'm uh, in the middle management of a big oil and gas company, and and maybe I'm in an administrative role or another role, uh, you know, I, I get paid more than average, and so maybe I go home to my community, and people are looking at me. I get paid more than they do to be, you know, to to work in oil and gas, whether it's accounts payable or geology. I still get paid more than the average geologist or the average accounts payable person. And maybe they feel a bit guilty about that and get into a bit of an apology type mood and start apologizing for what they do as opposed to being proud of it. Um, and, and, I, and I don't know that, I'm not sure that we in our industry do a great job of even explaining to our own employees what it's like in other industries and, and, that what we, and it, how what we do is really amazing. Um, and, you know, I mean, just to step back to that, you know, why do people in oil and gas get paid more money? It's because we have incredibly big decisions on big capital amounts where small mistakes add up to a lot of money. So we need very highly trained, highly motivated, and highly skilled people. And I'll just give the example. When I ran Nevada Bob's, you know, I could lose a customer because I ran out of golf balls. So imagine I'm out of a... 20 or $30 box of golf balls and I lose a customer over that, but this is 20 or $30 I'm being trusted with in terms of a decision. Well, in the oil and gas, you know, you make a mistake, you could lose millions of dollars. So people need to be, people need to, you know, there, there's a reason why people are paid more. They're, they're responsible for a lot more capital per employee. 
Um, but I don't know that I'm not sure that the average employee in the oil and gas industry would understand why they're getting paid a bit more. But that is the reason they because they have more responsibility. Well, and the and I mean part of the more responsibility is that the the you know the net of what they're doing with making those decisions is so incredibly productive and and valuable compared to other things they could be doing. Well, and that's what I meant about the risk and the reward. I mean, it's a it's a great industry. The the risks are that uh, that you know what seems like small mistakes can have enormous financial consequences. The other side of that is good decisions can also have very good financial consequences. So there's a money a lot of money won and lost in the oil industry. And I think that's another thing is, you know, I think the other thing maybe people feel a little bit guilty about is you always hear about how rich the oil and gas industry is. But a lot of the studies have shown it's got one of the lowest returns on capital of any industry. And it's, and, and, and it's because all the people who've made bad decisions, drilling dry holes, for example, you know, they're all gone. You don't see them. Uh, who you see are the ones that made the good decisions or had the good luck to find the right things. Well, of course they've done very well, but when you when you're looking at the who's left, you're you're looking at a biased sample of the successful people, and you're forgetting about all the capital and money that was lost by the unsuccessful people. And that's the nature of our business, and that may also create the you know people feeling guilty for their success. I guess I I I don't know. For me, it doesn't make sense, but I do. I think part of the answer to your question might be that those people who are successful maybe feel a bit guilty for their success, knowing that there's a lot of other people that went out of business and knowing that they're maybe being paid a bit more than average. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my, my own um, tendency is to explain a lot of it by reference to the ideas of environmentalism, and that uh, that leads me to a subject we've discussed offline in terms of just how much opposition there is to the oil industry and the extent to which people realize it. So you, can you talk about the, the extent to which there's really a battle against the very existence of the industry right now in Canada? Well, yeah, I, so that's now here's my personal, uh, my personal theory, like, uh, cause you, you start to ask yourself, well, you know, who are these people that fund research to say that natural gas is dirtier than coal and there's people actually like funding research to say that it's just so ridiculous on its face and yet there's people out there trying to make these cases there's people out there saying that you know we should be you know we're better off to import oil from across around the world from regimes of questionable questionable environmental ethics or or any sort of ethics for that matter and and that's somehow going to be better for our environment than using our own domestic oil and gas where we can actually control the environmental regulations and we, we know how it's produced. So, the, so these things just make no sense on their face. The, there's no prima facie case at all that these things make sense, at least in, in my view. So you start to look, well, what's the motivation of these, of, of, of these people? And, um, and, 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 and so you know, what we come to is say, well, they're just anti-growth. They're not pro-environment as much as, or, or maybe let's put it another way, in their minds, the, you know, the, there's limits to growth and the earth can't handle, you know, it's got too many people on it and we now have to somehow stop growth and stop, stop development and what's the best way to do that? Cut off energy. What's the best way to cut off energy? Tell people that all this oil and gas is bad for them. So I, I, you know, I, I think that that's been my, my feeling is that there's those people that uh, honestly believe there's too many people in the world. And, you know, my answer to that is, well, there's quotes from Egyptian times where people said there was too many people in the world. <laughs> Charles, Charles, Charles Dickens said we needed to get rid of the surplus population. Uh, there's no doubt that the world is a lot better off with 8 billion people in it than it was with 1 billion or however there might have been back in Egyptian times because of all of the technology and efficiencies and economies of scale and ability to specialize, it's just made our, cell, our world so much better. And I, I, so I think these people are misguided. I, I don't believe for a second that, that eliminating growth would do anything but be a disaster. If economies don't grow, I don't even know what you need a middle class for. Um, that's not going to be good for society. So I'm, I'm fundamentally against the, that 
that politics of limits to growth um, because I think it will be very bad for the for the human condition generally. So if, if we look at this philosophy and you know, limit, limits to growth is an actual publication by the Club of Rome in the early nineteen uh, seventies, which you know articulates a very popular or now popular version of the environmentalist philosophy, including the idea that growth is inherently unsustainable. How how is this philosophy playing out? Because Obviously, there are certain leaders like uh, David Suzuki, and then in the U.S. we have Bill McKibben and the, you know, Sierra Club and Greenpeace, who more or less explicitly believe this. Um, but if it were just them, it wouldn't be enough to affect policy and really threaten development. Yeah, but I think it's such, it's such a seductive thing because I mean, you know, I'll, I'll tell you just an example. I I was late for a meeting, and 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 there was there was a blockade downtown Calgary here, and. And, and I ended up being late for my meeting because there was too much traffic. Well, I, I can tell you at that moment in time, I thought there was too many people in the world, or at least there was too many people <laughs> on that street. And so it's a pretty easy thing for people, if they don't think carefully, to say, yeah, you know, I think there are too many people. Like, I would like it if there was, I would like it if there was less traffic, and I would like it if there was, you know, smaller cities, and if I had more room, and so on and so forth. And, and I agree that there are inconveniences, but there wouldn't be a road in the first place if there wasn't enough people to justify it. And, and there wouldn't be cars in the first place if there wasn't enough people to be able to specialize and develop the technology. And, and, and there, wouldn't be health, there wouldn't be hospitals, and there wouldn't be modern medicine, and there wouldn't be all the things that I really want. Um, and but I don't think people think about that. I think they just look around and say, gosh, my neighborhood's too crowded, and the cities are too crowded, and there's too much traffic, and can the world really sustain all this? And and you know, look at all these cars. The air must be getting worse. Well, the statistics are with better technology, the air is getting better. The water in Calgary is better than it was when I was a kid growing up. Air in Calgary is better than what it was when I was a kid growing up. And yet, the number of people in Calgary has not quite doubled, but almost doubled since I was a kid. So, if too many if too many people are ruining our environment, why? How can we double the people and end up with a cleaner environment then? So. It's interesting you're you're stressing this argument about um, too many people, which is is probably more popular in Canada than the U.S. In the U.S., it doesn't come up uh, very often. But I think in both cases, I mean, you, you if if you look at the debate over this issue, I mean, fortunately, we're not in the eras where you actually had forced sterilization. I mean, there are in certain parts of the world, but it's not on the table here to do forcible population reduction. Um, at most, the people who believe in that are doing it through the mechanism of trying to restrict affordable, reliable energy, which would then reduce the population uh, or require a reduced population. What, I guess, what policies are, like, what are the actual policies that are the threats that are, that are right. derived from or supported by environmentalism? Well, uh, just first on the, the too many people, I mean, that's a little bit of a metaphor for that there's, you know, we can only have so much growth. And, 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 but, I, but I think a lot of the people who, you know, believe we need to constrain growth and, uh, you know, because the earth just can't more pressure, um, you know, I think implicitly in their arguments, and for some of them it's actually explicit in their arguments that there's too many people. But, but, in, but I sometimes make the point to point out that implicitly what they're trying to say is there's too many people, even if they don't say it directly. Um, in terms of policies, uh, what I see is that for, for a long period of time, we've seen an environmental movement successfully chip away at the brand of oil and gas companies to the point that they're just, to the point that my own kids living in a house paid for by a career in the oil and gas industry will come home and say that we're evil. So our brand, you know, our, our brand uh, really sucks right now. And I think the environmentalists have done a really good job over a long period of time of, of doing that. I think they're now starting to chip away at the brand of, of regulators. People have gone from saying, I trust oil and, oil and gas companies, going, well, I'm not sure I trust the regulators either. They're all in the back pocket of the oil and gas industries. I mean, there's no regulators I deal with who are in my back pocket, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I think that, that, you know, slowly they've worked away at that. And the result has been that we're getting you know more and more expensive regulations and and regulations that are evidence based or science based 
that, that's why I think Alberta has one of the best oil and gas industries in the world. We, we, have, a, we have the luxury of an evidence-based regulator, regulator. I think the Texas Railroad Commission is an evidence-based regulator. But we're starting to see more and more that regulations are starting to become politically motivated regulations. You know, I, I, I heard, I heard uh, that, uh, that uh, fracking contaminates water, so we need a whole bunch of new regulations. Okay, but why don't, wouldn't we look at the science and find out if it actually does contaminate water first, which, which it doesn't. Um, I think that's the one risk that we're seeing is, is political-based regulation creeping to the system um, you know, moratoriums in Quebec, in New York State, moratoriums in in uh, in Quebec are, I think, are policy outcomes of the environmental movement. Well, you know, these are moratoriums on economic development. They're moratoriums on progress, and um, you know, that, that's, that, there's an outcome, uh, a, an outcome. And then, of course, we're also seeing a lot of subsidies towards uh, you know new energy. I'm a huge proponent, and in fact, I've got investments in some renewable energy companies, although they're companies that I think can make a difference without subsidies. Um, so, I, so I think we should continue to evolve our technologies and evolve our energy technologies. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm certainly not against any of the renewables, or renewables in, in principle, although it's specific ones I might think are silly. Um, but that policy of subsidizing all of those new uh, energies I might object to less if it wasn't sort of accompanied with all of this move for unnecessary restrictions and regulations on current forms of energy. You mentioned, uh, I think you put it as our brand. I forget if you said sucks, but I'll say, I'll say that. Um, I said exactly that. Our brand, our brand does suck. <laughs> okay, I, I just didn't yeah. want to attribute that language to you if, if you didn't use it, yeah. but. Um, so let's, let's, I want to take two scenarios. The first one is what happens if that, that doesn't change? Cause obviously changing it is a big interest of both of ours, but what, what if it doesn't change? What if nothing is done to, to switch directions? What do you see happening to politically and then economically? Yeah. So if, I mean, I, th I think, I think the, um, you know, if we can't get ourselves recognized for providing, you know, affordable energy, um, you know, from now and, in, 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 and into the future that people can really rely on uh, to underpin. And, and let's not forget energy. It's like food, shelter, clothing. It's, it's one of the essentials of life. I mean, it's essential. It's an essential in a, even a primitive life. You know, in a world of, uh, of Internet servers and iPads, it's, it's, it's a totally essential thing, our energy. And so if we can't, you know, if people don't, see us as the people that are the ones out there making sure that that energy is being provided on a reliable basis and in a way that the air in Calgary is cleaner than it was 20 years ago, then I think we could continue to see this regulatory uh, movement towards political regulation continue and and that you know that that the oil and gas industry will be regulated away from being able to continue to provide affordable energy, uh, or at least as affordable as it is now, which you know which might be a lot of environmentalist goals if if their pet project happens to be solar or wind, or if they even happen to be an employee or shareholder of a wind company, well they they might be happy that energy becomes unaffordable, but. If I'm if I'm the one driving to work and or I'm the one who's using my iPad or keeping my home warm, I may be less excited about it uh, than than the owner of a wind company. So let's take the let's take the other direction. Well, obviously, if the brand improves, then the amount of of freedom improves, development improves, economy and overall quality of life improves. What are your ideas on what? What different companies in the industry, let's start on companies first, what different companies can do or associations can do to improve the brand and improve the situation? Yeah. I, I feel the biggest problem that the industry's got with its brand is that we're not a consumer industry. So this is one of the things I learned. I mean, you know, when I ran a retail store, I was greeting customers every day. And if I ran out of golf balls, the customer told me directly what he thought about it. Um, so I was pretty connected to what my customers liked, what my customers wanted. Uh, if I wasn't if I wasn't hustling all the time to 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 meet their needs, well then they just went and shopped elsewhere. 
And I think one of the problems in the oil and gas industry is, you know, I, I, and it's one of the things I like about the industry. I don't, I don't, I don't have customers and what, what, a, what a pain they can be, right? So, but I don't have to fly to Chicago and say, please buy my natural gas because it's the bluest gas or it's the hottest gas or it's the, I, I just don't have to do it. I put it into a pipeline. It goes to, I have no idea where the molecules end up and somebody uses it. I don't know whether they're using it to heat their homes or whether they're using it in a petrochemical plant to make plastic or I have no idea what they do with it. And so we've lost, or maybe we never had, but we don't develop the skills it takes to talk to consumers and consumers are voters. And so I think that, that you know, as an industry, we need to start thinking about, well, what skills do other, what skills do consumer companies have in terms of talking to their customers who then become political constituencies? Like I always say to people, try to take away somebody's I, you know, iPhone 5. You know, there's a, there's a political constituency who says, I think Apple's great because I love my iPhone. And Apple knows how to talk to their customers who happen to be voters. Oil and gas companies don't. And I think, I think, in the end, it doesn't mean we don't have customers. Uh, people support our industry every day. They're heating their homes every day. They're using electricity every day. They're filling up their cars with gasoline every day. They are supporting us big time, but there's huge intermediation between us and our customers, and I think we need to learn how to connect back into our customers as, as consumers with, with votes and political choices. One thing I, I talked to one group about in Canada, actually it wasn't any of the ones that um, where I met you, but uh, I mentioned that in terms of Center for Industrial Progress developing effective uh, messaging, one of the, the ironclad rules of, of how to do it is that you constantly have to be interacting with real people because otherwise it's so easy to just get lost in a branding campaign and think, oh, this, this works in my head. And yet, not seeing how it works with regular people. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting insight about how some industries, by their nature, require you to be in that situation. And for others, such as the petroleum industry, it requires an extra effort to get that kind of connectedness. And I think that's something you you do just by going around and speaking a lot. It probably puts you in touch with the way people actually think and what what's more effective and what's less less effective in terms of arguments and messaging. Yeah, I, I, and I do. I mean, that's one of the things. I mean, I'm 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 um, I'm walking my talk because I spend a lot of time at, at different conferences, and and I've spent a lot of time in Quebec talking to ordinary people. I mean, small town mayors, farmers, uh, industry associations, small businessmen, big businessmen. You know, I spent a lot of time just going around and talking to different constituencies. And the the thing that I was mo- the thing that I've been most struck with is how little people understand about our industry at all. I, I mean, these are exceptions, but I mean, I spoke to one person that said, well, that's so interesting. I, I didn't realize that gasoline came from oil. And, and I gave a whole speech at another conference on shale gas. And the first, and I thought it was, you know, I, I thought I'd been able to get my speech down to, in a way that I was talking to the average person and not with technical jargon or anything like this about all the things we do and how we produce and all the economic benefits of shale gas, the first question was, what is this shale gas? What do we use it for? And I'm going, wow, you know, you just, we're, we've been so disconnected from, from the users of our product for so long. And by the way, the users of our product include, you know, all these plastics and, and, and artificial hips and all the things that come from, from hydrocarbons. And, and these customers probably don't know that they're artificial hips has a big constituency of hydrocarbons in it and they don't they really don't understand how what our industry is what our products are how we do it and so mostly what i have found is that as you say in terms of having these conversations it's really just about doing very basic talking about very basic things um well so what else would you would you recommend because I mean, there's there's talking about very basic things, but I feel like if someone if someone just got the advice with that level of specificity, it would be easy to go astray and and not to be particularly effective. And also, we have if we're talking about companies, they have all sorts of communication jobs to do, whether it's dealing with regulators or dealing with the media or advertisements. So, any thoughts you have on those would be great. 
Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I listened to your talk and when you were up here, which I thought was excellent, and it, you know, it talked about, uh, you talked about uh, that we need to stop apologizing for who we are. And uh, I think that's important. I mean, if I'm selling if I'm selling golf clubs to somebody, or if I'm selling my apple to somebody, I don't I don't apologize for my product. I tell you what's great about it. And um, I think that's so. I think that's you know I think that's a core message to say, you know, we need to sell people uh, on uh, on why what we do is great, and and we need to sell people that you know that these environmental impacts are getting better all the time. Technologies are getting better all the time. And if you really stop to think about it, you'd realize that your air and water, water qualities are better today. So, and, and by the way, in 20 years, they'll be better again. So it's not like there's this choice, I have to choose the environment or I have to choose my car and gasoline. You know, there, there, are, there are ways to balance these things, and we've been quite successful at that. And, and I think we have to go out and sell that to people. Look what we're doing for you. And, and, that, and, then, and I think, you know, those, then I think hopefully you get to the people saying, well, I'm not going to give up my my affordable energy with an ever reducing environmental footprint because it does continue to get better. I mean, and look at the miracle in the states right now with you know, didn't even sign the Kyoto Accord. It's the only G8 nation who's meeting. Why? Because of natural gas. Um, one one uh, recollection I have from a conversation we had with with when a number of other people were in the room is is the subject. I think I brought up the issue of how people only talk about the hazards of oil and gas and yet never talk about the very real hazards of of solar and wind. And someone suggested that well maybe you know w- you know we shouldn't criticize solar and wind et cetera. And I think you piped in and said well why not you know we're selling a, a product and I thought that was a really important perspective and not in the sense that you're saying it's evil or something like that but it is if you're selling a product why are you selling it you're selling it because it's the best for a certain purpose and often the oil industry portrays itself as oh we're just part of an all of the above policy like we're just one of many but really the reason why i use gasoline for my car is because it is the best thing and if it's just portrayed as oh we just happen to do this and solar is just as good but for some reason we need oil too it's not compelling and you wouldn't buy it if given a direct choice and so i think the reason that you actually buy it as a consumer even though you don't realize how much you buy it should be articulated by the industry in in the same way apple explains why the iphone is the best doesn't mean the other phones are evil but it still means it's the best yeah, I mean, it's just features and benefits. And, you know, I think my benefits are better than their benefits. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're the consumer, you decide. And I know you've hit on an important point. There is an insidious feeling, and the oil companies themselves believe this, I think, like many of us inside the industry believe, there's no choice. And, and, I, and I hate that. I hate that because it's not true, number one. And, B, it's just the wrong messaging. Uh, but... You know, the, the worst thing you can do to a human being is tell them they have no choice because they'll do everything they can possibly do to prove that you're wrong. And I would say Henry Ford in the consumer business understood that because he told people you can have any, every, any color you want as long as it's black, right? I mean, he knew not to tell people they have no choice even though they didn't. And in and, and the case of oil and gas, because we have this feeling like, well, there's no choice, you know, what that defaults to is it says, well, it's not a very good product, but we have no choice. Well, just as you said, that's, that's not true. It's an excellent product, and we actually do have choices. There's more than enough coal in the world, for example, right? We, we, and, and the other thing is, if we as a society want to pay more money, then we can have more solar and wind. Like, we need to, I think as the oil and gas industry, we need to start talking to consumers in consumer language and respect. Actually, you do have a choice. You have a choice to, to, you know, pay more money for wind or solar. You have a choice to use coal, which has, which might have more particulates and 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 uh, and, um, and 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 CO two in it. You have, you know, there's a there's a lot of choices that you have actually. And and I always say, you know, what you could you could be an energy vegan if you wanted to. In Calgary here, you can you can get an electric car and you can power the whole thing with bullfrog wind power and never touch oil and gas if you really want to choose to. It'd be more money, it'd be more difficult, but you can do it. And I think we need to start talking to consumers about, look, you have a choice, we get you have a choice. And, and, and you know, we think we're an important part of your energy diet and we're going to continue to work hard to continue to be an important part of your energy diet. And yeah, I think that's where... 
with this idea that there's no choice, A, I think it motivates people to say, fine, we'll find a choice. Exactly. Because we hate being, we hate being told we have no choice. So then you got people out there feeling negative towards you. And, and second of all, we need to realize people actually do have a choice. If, if our oil and gas doesn't continue to reduce the environmental footprint and we start impacting on people's quality of life, believe me, they'll choose something different. And if we don't continue to deliver on an affordable basis, believe me, they'll, they'll, they'll go elsewhere. And I think it's just that the messaging I mean, and the, the marketing of it and the explanation of it really has to reflect that. And it's important that on both sides of both the producer and the consumer are doing a moral thing. So if you're, if you're extracting shale gas or shale oil and selling it, you're producing something on the premise of this is the best way to do very crucial things in life. And when the consumer is choosing it, and he is choosing it, the fact that the alternatives are so radically inferior doesn't make it less of a choice. It just makes it a more dramatic a choice or a more obvious choice. He's doing the moral thing too. He's saying, look, I want to be able to take my family on more vacations. I want to be able to have more flexibility in terms of where I work. I want to be able to afford that artificial heart. And if we portray it as moral on both sides and people recognize that it's, it's a much more powerful message. So it's, it's great that, you know, that you're bringing that perspective. And I hope uh, other people follow the example. I know that, that uh, you have to run. We're almost out of time in our normal time slot anyway. So I just want to ask, is there anything uh, final you want to share with our listeners? Well, I, I'm, you know, I think it was, it was great to have a chance to meet you and to hear your perspectives about uh, you know, not being apologists for what we do and to realize that, uh, you know, as you say, that uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing morally wrong with, uh, with um, helping to progress an economy and, 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 and human, human, human progress, right? So I, I'm really pleased with that. Um, I, in terms of final comments, I, you know, I, I, think, I think, you know what, if, uh, if people would be great if they, if, they, if they became part of the solution too and said we're not going to just wait for some oil company to find us and tell us about all the great things we're doing, you, you, you can go on, you know, it's, it's easy in today's world to go on and learn for yourself and and you know, I think the miracle of modern energy and what it's doing for all of us is something that 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 uh, people can 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 educate themselves on as well. Uh, great, Michael. And one final thing: where can people find you online if they want more information? Oh, I have a blog at uh, questair.com, and that's spelled with spelled in a French way: a q u e s t e r r e dot com. And I'm also on Twitter at at m r binion b i n n i o n. Great, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. No, I appreciate you having me. Also, it was an interesting conversation. Thanks again to Michael Binion for coming on the show. I want to focus a little bit on my own ideas about what has caused the increase in government controls in the Canadian oil industry and what what threatens the industry. And it's really the same thing that threatens the American oil industry, the American fossil fuel industry, the American energy industry. And broadly speaking, probably no surprise, it's the philosophy and the movement called environmentalism, which... Uh, whatever its disguises ultimately places the rest of nature above human life and regards man's impact on the rest of nature as somehow sinful and ultimately destructive. And one consequence of this philosophy, though, so that, that's the enemy in general, but uh, one thing I talked about when I was in Canada was the form that this takes and, and the, how, how this manifests in terms of a problem. And the real problem, as I see it, is that the core of what the oil industry does, if we accept environmentalism to any degree, is bad. And I really want to stress the core is bad. Now, in any, in any debate, if we look throughout history, the side with the moral high ground has an unbelievable advantage. If we look at the United States... The fact that our founding fathers could take the moral high ground in the Declaration of Independence against Great Britain, which was you know, one of the best countries in the world and certainly the most powerful country in the world, and they could win, uh, certainly was helped by dramatically by the fact that they had the moral high ground. That allowed them to fight. That allowed them to win the support 
of people. And to have the moral high ground, the, what the core of your cause or the core of your action or the core of your purpose has to be viewed as good. It is the, the essence of what you're doing. So in this case, uh, liberating a nation from British oppression was viewed as good. Now, if this goal was viewed as bad, if it was viewed as somehow sinning against Mother England, uh, but you know, you know, but the the colonists had had some sort of really superficial reason for doing uh, what they're doing, or they said, you know, they didn't justify their own cause, but they talked about the great community service they were doing uh, for the Aboriginal peoples, which is a very common uh, justification for existence in Canada. That would not have won people over. They would have made them look guilty, and it would have made it very the issue very stark. Well, the core of what you're doing is wrong because you're going against Mother England. Now, that's not a very plausible idea today, maybe, and it's certainly a false idea. Uh, but we have the idea that the oil industry is going against, quote-unquote, Mother Nature. And in the form of, it's somehow bad to drill into the earth. It's somehow bad to take out oil. It's somehow bad to burn, to, to refine the oil and then to burn it and to use it and to enjoy it, allegedly because of the damaging impacts of CO2, but really there's always a, a justification of the week or the month or the decade or the quarter century. Um, but what's in common is that it's always bad to develop nature. And developing nature, developing the rest of nature is the essence of human life and certainly uh, an essential aspect of, of the production of energy. So when companies talk about how their goal is to minimize their footprint, or they talk about their goal is to, in Canada, they use, often use the term, we're going to minimize our, quote, disturbance of nature. That implies that the core of what they do is wrong. What we really need is a philosophy that says, no, the core of what we do, which is development, that is right, because nature is not our mother. The rest of nature gives us the potential for an amazing life, but to actualize it, we need to develop it using our minds. The oil industry is the world leader at developing portable energy and at developing modern materials, and it should be proud of that, and, and we should be grateful to that industry. So a lot of what I'm working with that industry is, is giving them the right perspective at looking things so that they really recognize what they're doing is incredibly positive, and in fact, that they deserve uh, a moral hybrid. So I hope that's a good thought. I hope you enjoyed today's interview, and that's the end of the show. So as always, if you have questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back. Another great guest, another great topic. And until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.